It's been a pleasure walking through these nine weeks with you. I've had such great feedback from folks, and um, it's it's been wonderful. It's been really wonderful. It's been wonderful to feel like, you know, and I, I hope you all get to feel this kind of feeling because we are the church and we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit for certain things to edify the body of Christ. And for me, the gifts that God's given me to be able to teach you all and to see it bear fruit in our congregation is really rewarding and just the most fulfilling thing. And I've, I've had conversations with our other clergy about the sort of impact that this class has had as people have gone out and there's a big mp3 listening culture here so you go out and you listen to these classes online which i'm really grateful for because it even beyond the anywhere from 50 to 75 people that have been in this room every week there's a whole host probably over 100 of additional folks that are listening to this stuff and imbibing what we're doing and and today perhaps we're uh, we're going into one of the most um i wouldn't importance not the right word but one of the one of the things that's very critical to get right, that, that Thomas Cranmer and the Reformers really, this was a liturgical hill that they died on. Uh, and in many ways, it's a liturgical hill that Advent wants to die on, precisely because the clarity of the gospel is at stake in the communion liturgy. And it's been a source of real confusion in the church. So we end our class today by going into the communion liturgy proper. But before we do, I want to pray and then offer a few comments, and then we'll get started. Our Father, we're grateful to be your children, and we thank you so much for the table. We thank you so much for the gift that it is to your people, and for the way that you choose to declare and demonstrate and make tangible your love and commitment and betrothal to us at the table. And we thank you for... uh, just how sacred a moment is where your gospel is whispered and shouted all at the same time. And so we ask that you be pleased to give us ears uh, to hear from you at the table and in preaching and in reading and in praying and in all those other wonderful aspects and elements of worship. Give us those kinds of ears and make Advent a continually and perpetually more lively worshiping community with full of heart and passion and vigor for your name and for your glory, and so that there might be great fruit born in your people, and so that others might come to know their maker. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so one thing I have is a correction from last week. As it was coming out of my lips, I was thinking, I don't know if that's right. And so uh, I indeed was wrong. And so I said last week that in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, that the word for faith and belief are the same. True of Hebrew and Greek, not true of Latin. Uh, in Latin, the word for faith and belief, they're actually different ones, which is why we have credo and fideo, right? Credo is where we get our creed from, I believe, those kinds of things. And fideo is faith. So interestingly, I, it really doesn't change the point, but I wanted to offer uh, the, the correction. And, and the point was that as you and I um, recite and say the creed, We are responding to and enacting what the Word of God does, which the Word of God, as we've said many times in this class, does what? It births faith, right? The Word of God births faith. And so when we, when we speak that creed, we, uh, we say, I faith, I have faith in these things. Um, 
All right, I wanted to, again, one more time, remind us of all these lectures and all these resources. And in fact, probably within a week's time, the full communion liturgy annotated, just like the morning prayer liturgy was annotated, will be up on this site, thechicks.com slash class. It's still funny the third week. So uh, even Andrew, Andrew has started calling me that because he's been listening to these classes. And he's like, hey, what's up, Zachicks? And I'm like, ah, it went a little too far. Um, so you can go there, thechicks.com slash class. Our goals that we're trying to do is better connect head and heart. And I hope that over these nine weeks, that's been the case, that you've actually not just thought new thoughts and had maybe a big intellectual structure for what worship is, but that your heart has truly been a little bit more engaged in worship as a result of this class. And the second goal is to tune our ears to hear the gospel in worship. I hope that your ears have been able to hear God speaking directly to you, saying, you are mine, you are my child, you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. I died for you. And we're going to see that all over the place in the communion liturgy, and I'm looking forward to getting to that. The heart of the prayer book is that we might unleash that it might unleash the word of God to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. There's nothing short of death and resurrection that is meant to be felt and experienced every week as you come to worship. The word of God desires, Christ desires to kill you and to make you alive. All right? Both, both, because the flesh needs killing. Until Christ comes, there's always the flesh that's always wanting to rise up and uh, claim territory for ourselves. And part of worship is to beat that flesh back down unto death, to send it to the grave where Christ died. I died with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Who's that I? The old person. The old Adam. The old Eve. I am crucified with Christ. That's that part. But we are also risen with Christ. That's the side of it, right? That's the goal and the, the movement of the liturgy. Again, we looked at Holy Communion here. We looked at all these elements and we basically said it takes a very ancient two-part structure. It's a very historic thing that Christians have been practicing for centuries upon centuries. The first half of the Communion Liturgy is called the Liturgy of the Word, typically, historically, as people have talked about uh, that. And it's everything from the beginning of worship all the way through, as we said, the Offertory. And we talked about last week why it's really important that the offertory be seen as the end of the liturgy of the word and not the beginning of the uh, liturgy of the upper room or the liturgy of the table. But we also noted that in calling them the liturgy of the word and liturgy of the upper room, with the reformers we want to remember that actually both are ministries of the word of God. And I don't simply mean the Bible. I mean, the concept of the Word of God displayed in places like John 1, where he talks about Jesus, or in Hebrews, where it says the Word of God is living and active, because the Word of God principally is living and active in the reading and preaching of the Scriptures. The Word of God, and out of that ministry comes other ministries of the Word of God, like the table, like prayers, like conversations with folks, in the way that the active Christ works through you and me to preach and to kill and to make alive, those kinds of ideas. So the liturgy of the Word, the liturgy of the upper room, we might say it's uh, the liturgy of the Word through Scripture and preaching, and the liturgy of the Word through Holy Communion, right? Okay. Ah, before we get there. Uh, one thing I want to say, I was looking again to make sure that I covered a lot of, if you were here the first week of class, I submitted cards to you and you asked a lot of questions. 
And I tried over the course of these weeks to sort of naturally answer a lot of the questions that you had that pertained to what we were doing over uh, the course of the, the weeks. But one of the questions that hasn't been answered yet is uh, someone asked why the altar to the wall controversy. And what they mean by that is uh, actually Advent's original architecture and many, uh, many, many other Anglican churches as a result of the Oxford Tractarian movement and all the architecture that sp- spawned out of Anglicanism in the rise of Roman um, ideals in that period started changing their architecture uh, really against what the reformers did. <laughs> and one of those architectural features is that the, what they call the altar, um, which Cranmer would prefer the word table, the reformers would prefer the word table, um, the, the altar was against the wall. Uh, and so what that basically forced um, or what that caused or what that did in medieval Roman Catholicism meant that the person administering the sacraments was standing like this and the congregation was out there as they were preparing the elements and actually in medieval Roman times were actually receiving the elements by themselves and doing a bunch of things that the people of God could not hear. Why? Because the altar is something sacred where where Christ is re-sacrificed, so they said. And so it was the job of the priest to do this and the, the job of the people to watch this. And the reformers took great theological uh, exception to this. Why? Because what's the visual? If the presence of God is up here, and you are here, and the priest is here, what theological statement is being made? I am your mediator. That's what theological statement. And reformers looked at Scripture and said, First Timothy seems to indicate, and the rest of Scripture seems to indicate, that there's one mediator between God and humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So let's get these altars out of the wall, closer to the people. And if anything, if the minister has to do actions, they're behind. Why? Because access. There, there needs to be access. And so the vision is there's nothing standing between me and God's very presence because Christ has done it all. I don't need anyone else to help me I don't need Christ to do most of it and then me or some other human being to help me the rest of the way, right? So that visual was very important. And now many years ago, Advent pulled it out from the wall, not without a lot of hubbub, right? Uh, some of you may have been around for that. But that was a very uh, theologically and practically significant thing to do because it makes a huge statement. And as you can see, the gospel is at stake in that visual. How do I get to God? I get to God through Jesus and through a minister, right? No, right? That's the idea is that there's only one mediator and advocate. You know, it's, uh, and so that's why um, a distinctive of Protestant Anglicanism is that the tables moved out. And actually, Cranmer, when these changes were being made, had encouraged, and the other reformers encouraged the table to actually be put on uh, in the chancel area, you know that little kind of pathway you walk through. In many cases, it was a little wide, and it was actually uh, deconstructed and reconstructed not as a big stone slab that looks like an altar, but as a, a table with legs, so that we realize this is a place where, just like in the Old Testament, they had fellowship offerings and they communed with God. This is a place where we, through the body and, and blood of Christ, commune with God until He comes again. All right, so they really wanted the table idea 
Um, and that's why the, the language of table is important. In the 1552 liturgy, Cranmer struck all the instances where the rubrics and um, the liturgy said altar and replaced it with either holy table or God's board. Uh, like we use the, the phrase room and board. That's that idea. It's, it's the holy table. So I'm just pointing out, this is the tradition that Advent really feels uh, strongly that we fall under is reformational Anglicanism. So these things matter. And it's not just because we like to feel really ancient and Anglican. It's because when we read the scriptures, we hear a gospel that has become very obscured in certain acts, especially around the table of God. And we want to make that clear. And that should hopefully explain a little bit about this next part as we look at this. I've given you a sheet. The only difference between what I'm displaying up here, which is very small, and what you're seeing is that I've included uh, Advent and what we've done. But I want you to just notice, this is very helpful to see it this way, even if you don't understand uh, all these things. Number one, you have on the back of this handout, sorry, the front of the handout is comparing the structure of Holy Communion in the Book of Common Prayer, 1552 to 1979, for those listening to the recording. But on the back is listed all the prayers uh, that they're named after. So if you're confused by, like, what are these words? Sursum corda, I mean, is that a surgical procedure? Or, um, you know, sanctus, I don't get that. Uh, those are on back. Anamnesis, is that some sort of disease? Like, I've got anamnesis, but uh, no, it's actually a Greek word and epiclesis. And so these things are on back to help you understand what the, these sections of prayers are. And beca- why? Because they get moved and shifted based on one's understanding of the gospel. Okay? So, if you look in 1552, which we uh, at Advent believe um, in many ways was the liturgy that expressed as close as they got to a reformational liturgy, a gospel-centered liturgy, You see what Cranmer set up. He set up the Sorsum Corda, which is the Lord be with you, that section. And then right after that came the Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy. Right after that, we prayed the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this thy table, right? And then uh, a little bit of an an opening prayer. Uh, That opening prayer is still the one we use, but because Cranmer eliminated the uh, anamnesis and epiclesis prayers, and hopefully I'll explain that a little later why he did that. He restructured a more condensed prayer with kind of the greatest hits of those prayers through a Protestant grid. Um, and so we have that in our liturgy. And then this is the big part to notice. The gap between the words of institution and reception. So what I mean is the gap between on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he blessed it. And he gave it. And he took the cup and he he gave it. There's no gap between that liturgical moment for Cranmer and actually receiving it. The reason Cranmer did that was because in Roman liturgies, there was a huge amount of praying and a huge amount of things being said in between that moment and the moment that was received. Those prayers tended to give off the vibe that we... Uh, you know, recognizing Jesus instituted, we're kind of making ourselves ready. We're pulling ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. And before we're going to get this, we got to give ourselves. And so, for instance, this prayer of oblation, this prayer of we offer ourselves to you, all that we are, came before receiving 
And Cranmer said, no, I want, I want the people of God to understand that once God says, I give this to you, there's nothing left to do but to receive. And there's, there's, that's the gospel right there. Gospel is unmerited gift. Gospel says Christ died for you. Hear it and believe. Christ died for you. Christ didn't die for you, but you've got to sort of muster up enough faith and works to be able to receive it. And those of you that do get it, and those of you that... No! They didn't want any of that, right? And so for Cranmer and for the Reformers, it, it meant a lot to shorten that gap between the words of institution and reception. Once one hears of grace offered, there is nothing left to do but receive it. That's a big reformational gospel-centered principle. And now look at what happens over time. This, Especially look at that gap. Um, 1662, interestingly, uh, the only thing that changed was they added the Lord's Prayer back in after reception, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but once we move to 1789, when the first American prayer book is ratified, a deal goes down between Samuel uh, Seabury and the, the Scottish Episcopal Church. And the deal goes roughly like this. We will help you secure your, uh, your bishopric over the American church if you make sure that these prayers get back in there. Uh, and so, because they, they were more Roman in their orientation, and, and, and who knows what's, I mean, that's, that's sort of the historical evidence of what transpired politically and other things like that. Who knows how full that story is. But when the American prayer book is ratified, the Anonesis and the Epiclesis prayers and the prayer of oblation, the prayer of we offer ourselves to you before receiving, come back in between the words of institution and reception. And so from the inception of the Book of Common Prayer in the United States, we already sort of have the odds stacked against us that we understand communion in a gospel-centered way. Okay? 1928, more stuff is moved and added. The prayer of humble access moves away from being after the Sanctus in the beginning. So being obscured right now, if you've heard Andrew talk about this, is Sanctus being holy, 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 and the prayer of humble access being this moment of kind of confession. There's a, there's a very Isaiah 6 structure to that. When Isaiah hears the words of heaven, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. I, I saw and heard these heavenly beings in, in, the, in the heavenly throne room, worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, singing Sanctus. What did Isaiah do next? He fell to his knees and said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And that's what Cranmer was getting at when he put the prayer of humble access right after the Sanctus. His goal was to say, right after we are brought up by the Spirit to the heavenlies, to see the heavenly throne room, what must we do? We must fall on our knees and, and cry, have mercy, which we do. We, we don't presume to come to this thy table trusting in our own righteousness because we're feeling the blaze of the white-hot glory of the holiness of God, right? Um, so not understanding that, maybe, or just ignoring that structure. Prayer of humble access, they took along with the Lord's Prayer. Which, interestingly enough, makes a bit of liturgical sense to put before you receive. To say something like, give us this day our daily bread, before you receive the living bread of Jesus Christ, right? Um, 
But nevertheless, what's happening is there's more stuff being put in between institution and reception. Okay? Are you guys tracking with me? So, once we get to 79, we add these two things. And this is the first time this was done, but in 79, they have a separate moment other than when the words of institution happen where the bread is broken. What is that move about? That move is a move in a Roman direction to say that there's there's the words of institution and then there's something special that happens when this bread is broken, which is why we put the Agnus Dei there. It's not Agnes Dei. It's not some old lady that, I don't know. It's uh, Agnus Dei, which is Latin for a lamb of God. Why? Because when in in uh, in in medieval practice, when the bread was broken and they sang, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they were showing the bread. And they were saying, Look, look at what's happening here. The reformers were very concerned that when that is seen as the climax of worship, you lose a sense or the gospel gets sort of muted by the spectacle. So when that moment is happening and that climax is occurring, we're sort of taking our eyes off the gospel ball and we're much more in awe of the magic of what's happening at the table than we are of the power of grace being declared to us at the table, spiritually by faith, right? And so when this stuff is occurring, it's just another way that, again, words of, words of institution happen and reception happen, but there's stuff in between that makes it uh, a climactic moment that isn't the moment of climax we want, or we understand the scriptures help us to realize. The moment of climax should be the moment when you're receiving that bread and you're hearing the minister tell you, body of Christ, which is for you. Remember that Christ died for you. This whole thing is about remembering in the, in the spiritual, big, robust sense of remembrance. Anamnesis. It's a good, good Greek word. Um, remembering in the rich sense of going back to the cross and being preached to again. Once again, having your old Adam and old Eve slain and watching the new Adam be preached to you and rise up, Jesus Christ, right? And because the reformers were very concerned about the way climaxes influenced the emotional moment and obscured the gospel, they wanted to make it crystal clear that reception was that moment where uh, the climax occurs because grace is just being given and all you're doing is receiving God's word of grace to you, okay? So, um, now I want to quickly talk about, I don't want to tarry too much, um, even though I recognize that recent changes we've made, hopefully, as I talk about this, you actually, light bulbs are going off instead of defense mechanisms, because now you get why. Now you get why. But when you look at Ad, uh, Ad, Advent 2016, by the way, all these things here, these things that are crossed out or moved, weren't changed this past year. Some of these things we've been not doing and practicing for quite a while. Many of you know, actually, when those changes came under previous deans or rectors. Um, but you notice what Advent has done. What basically we've done is we have, we have in our possession the 79 liturgy. Our desire, not just to be old and not just to be traditional, but for the sake of the gospel, uh, was to get closer to what uh, the expression of 1662 was. And so in making some of those changes to our order of worship this past year, the goal has been to narrow that gap between institution and reception. 
Uh, and aside from the uh, Agnus Day, which is still sung at 7.30, we haven't been uh, breaking the bread in a separate spot for a long while, nor have we been saying the liturgical line that accompanies it. Because number one, uh, it's a misquote of Scripture to say that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Because in the original language and most English translations now show that that was past tense. Um, and uh, if if this means anything to you, it wasn't present tense, it was aorist. Bishop Allison points that out in a short article uh, called Christ, Our Passover Was, parentheses, not is, sacrificed for us. Because the point is that Christ isn't sacrificed here at the table again. He was sacrificed once for all, which is why our communion language has so much once for all, His one oblation. You know, again and again, it's hammering. Again, It happened once there on the cross, not here at the table, right? There's lots of that language. Uh, so, And we haven't done that for a while. But the big thing that has changed for us is, um, is the movement of the oblation out of anamnesis and epiclesis. I could have crossed it out, but because we sometimes use it, and it goes marvelously after receiving communion, um, we now are rotating it into our post-communion prayers. Much more in keeping, actually, with, uh, with what Cranmer did, because in his post-communion prayer is the prayer of oblation. That's where it was originally put in English. Yeah. Exactly. It looks a, a very similar to 1662, except for the placing of the um, Lord's Prayer and the Prayer of Humble Access. Right. Uh, why weren't those moved as well? Was that theological or pastoral? Good question. The answer is pastoral. Um, moving, I mean, moving a lot of things at once causes more unrest, uh, more rebellion and more angst. Uh, but I'm glad you asked the question because you're kind of putting your reformational hat on, your Pauline theology hat on going, wouldn't it be great? Because now I see the movement of it, right? Um, you know, and we may we may see this movement of the prayer of humble access to, to move back there, which I hope you see as something kind of helpful and fitting and more theologically accurate. Uh, it's such a wonderful prayer. No matter where it is, isn't it moving? Um, and I don't know. I, we, may, I, we haven't really talked about it in too much detail, but it is helpful, I think, to pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and then it's given, right? But I think for Cranmer, it... That he just wanted this gap so short that for him, even great things like the Lord's Prayer needed to find another place in the liturgy because he wanted that particular experience to be uh, so clearly gospel and gospel-driven. But you can kind of see what what we're doing here and why we've made some of the changes we are. I, I don't want to get into um, this too much, does any, but does anybody have any questions before we actually start expositing the prayers, which is really where I wanted to get to. I mean, I wanted to talk about this and kind of clear this up, but does anybody have any questions about anything along this historical timeline? I, this is more just a comment, but on the, the prayer of humble access has always struck me as, as being a, having a, a tint of Romanism to it. I mean, and, and we may get into this. We now, will. Eat his flesh, yeah, flesh and drink his blood, um, yep. Yeah, we will. We will get into that. Good question. Yes. In 1979, that 
The Premier Rumble Access isn't in the Right 2 service, though, is it? No, it's not. Okay, so you're comparing 1979, Right 1. Right 1, yeah, that's a good... This is... Because it's the closest thing. Uh -huh. Um... Yeah, the prayer of humble access is just eliminated. It's a little too dark and sinny. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, that's that's maybe a little snarky, but that's uh, that's some of it. Even even in our uh, even in our prayer, one thing has been eliminated. Not actually for the dark and sinny reason, but um, if you read right one prayer of humble access, you'll notice that the line. Um, I, let me see it real quick. It's on the back of your sheet under the prayer of humble access. I note that. Yeah, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by His body and our souls be washed through His most precious blood. Now, there is sin in that, but reading uh, the prayer book revisers in, in, the, in what they were saying, they said they were concerned about the d dualism going on there. And what they meant was physical, spiritual dualism. Like, there's too much distinction between body and soul, which I can sympathize with because... Uh, a hyper-Greek distinction of this stuff forgets that we're an integrated whole. And that was a really sort of hot theological topic in the mid-20th century was the integration of ourselves and stuff. And they thought maybe if we're distinguishing that the the bread helps our bodies and the wine helps our souls, we're being too dualistic there. That's why they took it out. We think a lot's lost. Even if there's like a, a maybe a teaching of dualism that we don't want in there. A lot's lost when you start when you when you take those things out, because it's a very precious moment to say that uh, to contrast our sinful bodies with Christ's holy body and our sinful souls, <laughs> our sin marred souls with Christ's pure, uh, unadulterated soul. Anything else? That was really the most important thing of today. So we'll see how much else we can get into. But Sanctus and Benedictus. One of the things you noticed in your sheets is this, sanctus only. There's no blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord until 79. Before 1552, the Benedictus, that second section was in there. Cranmer took it out. Why did he take it out? Because in the Roman liturgy, at that moment, when they're saying, where does that line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? It's scriptural. Why would you take out scripture? Where's that line from? The account in the Gospels. Does anybody recall it? Palm Sunday. When Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, they are saying that. So what's the liturgical significance of saying that at the moment of communion? Jesus is coming. He's going to be right here. Right? And again, Cranmer's thinking through the lens of not wanting to obscure the Gospel and how it is that we encounter Jesus. And Cranmer would say, spiritually by faith. Spiritually by faith. Through these ordinary means of bread and wine, but spiritually by faith. Not Jesus doesn't come you know, physically in these elements. That's what Cranmer would say. Not everybody agrees that Cranmer would say that. I do. I think Cranmer would say that. Um, and, and it makes sense of why he took that out. Uh, so, in 1979, we added it back in. Interestingly, again, it's one of those places where we're, we're sort of incompletely realizing this theology at Advent because we, we still sing this at, uh, <clears throat> can't remember if it's 7.30 or 9. Do you, Gene? It's 11. So we sing both at 11. Um, and again, not many people are aware of this. Not many people, uh, and there is a sense in which that could be sung authentically. 
but you just have to realize some of the sort of theological ideas at play. Um, but here, the one thing I just want to point out to you, I've written some of those things in, in the left-hand column of the annotated leaflet, and I've summarized it pretty well. But what I want to encourage you all to do as believers uh, is what's in the right-hand column. Marvel in this moment. Because we've said, lift up your hearts. We lift them unto the Lord. In that moment, what we're basically saying is, Holy Spirit, take me to heaven to be where Christ is. Take me there. And this moment is kind of acknowledging He's taken us there. Why? Because we're listening to the heavenly song that according to Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5, this is what's sung in heaven over and over again. Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts, Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee. It's just, it's this powerful moment where we recognize in whose presence we stand. That moment where both John and Isaiah saw it and they, they're like, I can't quite describe it. John was like, it looks like a throne with a, something that looks like rainbows and there are there's stone on the ground. and It looks like, and he, John is using all these similes and metaphors because he can't quite describe it. It's so overwhelming to him visually and orally and everything else that he's overwhelmed. And this is, this is how this moment should feel. Marvel in this moment at the holiness and glory of God the Father. Rejoice that we, through Christ, are granted permission, not only permission, but welcome even, to enter the most holy place and to join the company of heaven in the song that they sing day and night without ceasing. Allow this to be a moment of deep, rich, powerful worship. Do you see this? You're joining the heavenly song, the heavenly 7 song that gets sung, you know, seven words 11 times, but it's actually more like seven infinity, right? Because they're singing this and we get to jump in to this song where they are. You know, um, worship, I've heard one, one commentator say, is nothing short of the embassy of heaven, where American national soil ceases, where we are on heavenly soil. And we get these moments in worship when the word of God is preached and when the sacraments are administered, where we get to experience what our future will be, where the future, as one common, other commentator put it, leak, leaks forth or puts forth its buds in the present, where the future and the sounds of the future echo back to us in a way where we can hear them and go, oh, that's where I'm headed. This is what's coming. Whoa, you know, it's supposed to be that that magical moment where uh, time is warped and there's a leak in the dam of the future coming back to us in little tokens and dribbles. But we hear the song of the angels and we join because we know that's what's coming, right? That's the power of the table. That's the power of the table. And then we, we hear this prayer. All glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father. Maybe to point out a few things. At this moment where it says, Hear us, O merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee. This is the part where we've gone back to the 1662-1552 language. This is the part where I was saying Cranmer gave us the greatest hits of the anamnesis and the epiclesis prayers without all the theological hang-ups. And I'll get to that in a second. But I want to point out a few phrases. Number one is this phrase right here. Jesus Christ, who suffered death on the cross for our redemption, who made there? Where? On the cross. Where did Jesus die? Where was Christ sacrificed? There. Not here, but there. That word is really important. 
a lot of prayer book commentators who talk about this will say that that word is critical for understanding Cranmer's Protestant theology. Critical for understanding how Cranmer is trying to orient the believer to hear the gospel better and not treat the table like a spectacle to be marveled at, but Jesus' grace to be received. Who made there? And then this language of one oblation, this one offer, offering. The table is not a re-sacrificing and a re-offering of Christ. On the cross, Christ made his one offering. Read Hebrews 10. Read Hebrews. That's why one oblation of himself once offered, right? Trying to make clear, trying to hammer home that this thing is, is once for all. It's not like this needs to be repeated to take effect. It was good enough, strong enough. It did all the work. We don't need to do anything else but receive it, right? That's the goal of this language of, of this one, one, once kind of idea. And if that wasn't good enough, look at all these words. A full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. He could have just used one word, but he knows, he knows our psyche our, and our, uh, our soul is tempted to just, I mean, the sacrifice was good. I need to give a little bit, right? Jesus' blood, thank you. I couldn't have done it without you, but you're awesome. I'll take it from here, right? That was sort of the disposition of the Christian in the 16th century, which is why Cranmer's like, I'm going to give you triplets, full, perfect, and sufficient, and it's a sacrifice, and it's a synonym for sacrifice and offering and oblation and satisfaction. Really important word if you study Roman theology and the way they understood, Jesus justifies me, but there are moments in my life where I need to offer satisfaction. I need to sort of satisfy God by my effort. Line in the sand, right? Flag on a hill. Satisfaction. Jesus offered the full, perfect, and final satisfaction, right? For our, And I mean, I hope... We're not just theologically equivalent, but you're feeling a little bit of weight pulled off your shoulders right now as you're thinking about the fact that Jesus offered these things to you. This other word now, um, Holy Gospel, command us to continue a perpetual memory. Okay? There's a debate going on about how to translate these words into English. Memory or memorial. And the Romanists wanted to say Put memorial in there. Why? Because it hearkened to Levitical memorial sacrifices. If you read Leviticus chapter 2, chapter 6, and other places, it talks about these memorial sacrifices. And again, they were wanting to drive the theology that there's a sacrifice taking place here right now. But in translating the word anamnesis, which is where we get kind of, we don't get the same, it doesn't mean the same thing, but where we get, it's from the same word group as amnesia, you know, anamnesis, because it has to do with remembering and memory and those kinds of things. Translating that memory is very critical to understanding this table as a remembrance, not a memorial sacrifice, right? So uh, that's why that language is there. And then we say, hear us, O merciful Father. And then this prayer begins. And um, I'll just read this section for you. This prayer begins the 1552-1662 section, which was a condensed and modified uh, version of the Roman theology which preceded it. Sadly, the American prayer book has reinstated this, which we already talked about. In 1552 and 1662 prayer, in this prayer, Cranmer eliminated any blessing or consecration of the elements. Cranmer wanted to be clear for the sake of the gospel that through the elements, the creatures of bread and wine, meaning the creations, the physical creations of bread and wine, that uh, though the elements are set aside for holy use, they're not transformed into anything different other than bread and wine. The reformers believe the language of blessed 
bless and sanctify, were best reserved not for the elements of the Lord's Supper, but for people. As we try to often say, at the Advent, we don't bless things. We bless people. Here's my paraphrase of Ashley Knoll. Cranmer indeed, listen to this, this is kind of cool. Cranmer indeed believed in transubstantiation, which is the Roman doctrine of the elements transforming into the, the body and the blood of Jesus. Cranmer indeed believed in it, but he didn't believe that in communion the elements were transubstantiated. Rather, at the table, it is you and I, the church, that is transformed into the body of Christ. And we'll see that a little bit later in the prayer that follows. Okay, this last phrase, partakers of his most blessed body and blood. So this is getting toward answering your question, Cain. Uh, the reformers didn't shy away from the tension presented in the scriptural language. They insisted with scripture that in communion we indeed partake Jesus' body and blood. But with Cranmer, uh, sorry, but Cranmer with Calvin believed this to be a spiritual feeding by faith, as we'll see later in the liturgy. So I know it doesn't completely answer the question, but let's move on. The words of institution, for in the night he was betrayed. Just the scriptural quotation from Corinthians, right? And then we pray the Lord's Prayer. And the one thing I'd point out is as we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Watch prayer being answered immediately. You pray this prayer and then God gives himself to you. God answers prayer, you know? Um, that's pretty marvelous that God gives it to us in a really tangible way in worship. The prayer of humble access, all right? This prayer really stands on its own. It is a favorite among people who have been worshiping in the Anglican and Episcopalian tradition for a long time for good reason. It's awesome. We don't presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. I love this line. This line is, is hearkening after an episode in the Gospels. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Right? He's a good God. And I love that line. We need to hear that line because we're tempted to always sort of default to some God who's out there to judge us and to throw the gauntlet and the hammer on us. And he's a God whose property is always to have mercy. And we're not worthy to gather up those crumbs under thy table. And yet, and yet, he not only gives us the crumbs, he gives us his son. He gives us his son. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. So have we slipped in this moment into um, physical blood? No. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Cranmer just wanted Scripture to be able to be displayed for itself. And we have to account for the fact that Jesus said very clearly in John 6, uh, you will not see eternity unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which is why in the first century, Christians were uh, called by their Roman counterparts, counterparts cannibals. They eat human beings. They said this new religion that believes in Jesus, they eat him. That's weird, right? Um, because there's this mystery. There's this mystery. And we want to go as far as Scripture goes, which says we truly eat his flesh and drink his blood. But yet somehow that is spiritually because we receive Christ by faith, right? And there's this ten tension in the mystery. And Cranmer was willing to just present and live in the tension without erring to the right or to the left. And so I think our liturgy does a good job of straddling that because it's nothing short of the nourishment of who Jesus is in all his physicality. He gives himself to us spiritually and physically at this table.
And then this line right here that you need to hear, we all need to hear strongly. And besides this, we're going to end right after this with one other thing, but the gifts of God for the people of God. And listen to this and believe this as God speaking directly to you. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you. Hear that as God's word to you. Don't hear this as Christ died for all kinds of people or Christ died for sinners and the ungodly. All true. But until you hear that Christ died for you, there's no faith that gets birthed because the word of God needs to speak directly to you, that word. And we hear it a few more times. Um, And notice that right after we talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it is paired with the idea of feed on him in your hearts, in your hearts, which are where we've lifted them to heaven. The Spirit has taken us to heaven by faith with thanksgiving, right? So there's that kind of mystery that we've got going on there. And then as we receive, turn to your next page here and we'll close here. You can read some of the other stuff. Pay attention. If there's one part where I just want your ears like listening, pay attention to the words being spoken to you as you receive the bread and wine. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, for you. Preserve thy body and soul into everlasting light. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. There are two places where it's trying to remind you this is for you. Jesus died for you. Don't you forget it. Here for thee as God's very word. God's word from his heart to you and receive the grace that's there. Communion is a time to remember God's great love for you in Christ. It's a time to look back, a time to return to the cross and remember the costly love, the precious blood, the courage, strength, and compassion of our Savior. It's a time to look forward. Communion is also meant to point us ahead to when Christ will come again, when we will feast with Him on the other side of all of life's pain and difficulties. It's a token of God's promise. He is reminding us that His Word is true. He will not abandon us. He will not let us go. It's like renewing his wedding vows with you every week. You know, if you've been married and you go back to that tape, if if some of you had an audio or video recording of it, there's something special about remembering those days when you made those promises. And God is reciting his vows to you at the table. This is my body. This is my blood. I have given this for you. This promise is irrevocable and I will not let you go. And that's a wonderful way to end class and to end our series. So thank you guys so much for your great attentiveness and everything else.